Welcome to the first episode of Black Spaces. Today, we're going to be discussing public education and how black space is portrayed, disrupted, and how school systems sometimes hinder the growth of black space through limited resources. Also, we're going to be um, looking at how the school system is constantly trying to readjust black and brown children to fit more into a white Americanized ideal. Um, we're going to be looking at this through the lens predominantly from uh, Detroit public school system. I interviewed my father who put four children through um, the Detroit public school system in the 80s and 90s when um, there was a lot going on. The school of choice was becoming a thing and there was white flight. So without further ado, you're entering black spaces. I attended Detroit Public Schools from 1985 to 1998, from kindergarten to 12th grade. I attended Cook Elementary School, graduated high school at Cass Technical High School. I have nothing bad to say about DPS. They did have their downs, but I also have to uh, give them credit for me being who I am today. I am a successful person. Um, I didn't realize how less we had until I got out of school and I saw what the other schools uh, in the suburbs had access to and the lack that we had, I didn't realize till afterwards, but I will say Detroit Public Schools did its job in teaching me what I learned today, and I am thankful for that. First, I'm going to introduce my co-host for the week, Candace. Hey, everybody. Happy to be here. So me and Candace are just going to talk about um, some of the topics in education that I mentioned in the intro um, when you're thinking about Black spaces and how that... Um, you know, how that looks in an educational setting, just in various ways. I talked to dad a little bit, um, and I'm going to be using some of his, well, here's some of the things that he has to say, because, you know, of course, he put four kids through public school in Detroit during the 80s and 90s when white flight and everything else was going on. So, mm -hmm. I just talked to him about his experiences on the other side as a parent and how that was going through that and what he thinks about the educational system now versus how it was then. So, yeah. When you think about the purpose of education, like, what do you think? So first, let me give you a little background. So there's, um, there's this constant uh, struggle between these different ideas of what education is supposed to do Mm -hmm. um, so there's like uh, democratic equality uh, or, you know, um, creating citizenship so people can have um, equal access, you know, to, to everything okay. um, and, and know where they stand in society. And then there's um, a social efficiency 
which is, you know, is it for us to be trained, I guess, to, uh, to do certain jobs in society to, so yeah. that our society can become more efficient? Yeah. And what does that look like? And then, or another one is, um, oh, social mobility, which, you know. Let's be, let's be real guys. <laughs> what do you think? What, what do you think is probably, what would you say is um, the goal of education in America? Oh, the goal, the goal of education in America. That's the really uh, big question. I think there's the goal of education on paper and then there's something else that happens entirely in reality. But I would think that the goal possibly on paper um, would be democratic equality because I mean, you often hear about uh, democratic equality in other, in other types of context. So I think that that it would kind of spill over into education. So you said on paper, what do you think it is in reality? In reality, um, it's something that's quite different because I mean, I, I think it maybe exists in pockets, this idea of democratic equality for a certain group of people in certain school systems but I don't think it's available in every school system. I definitely don't think it's available in DPS. And if you were to compare DPS and other public school systems to um, different school systems across the country, I think that would become very evident. What do you think about the whole idea of social mobility as being a goal? I think social mobility likely exists again in pockets of the country. Yeah. Um, as a product of DPS, social mobility wasn't an option for. Me. Yeah, I'm still. That's the thing is that when you think about it, it's like there's this conflict there, right? So yeah. you know, you have social mobility and then democratic equality mm -hmm. and social e efficiency, mm -hmm. and all of those things kind of conflict with each other. But I wonder why they conflict so much. And yeah. my thing is. If you take, and this is going to sound nuts, but if you take all of the black and brown people out of America, mm -hmm. you only have a white society, like how it was when, you know, the Europeans first started to arrive here. Yeah. But you had this, you had this, you know, white idealistic, and I'm putting up air quotes, mm -hmm. society. And so it's like, maybe for that society, all of those things could work together. Maybe you yeah. can create, you know, have democratic equality and social efficiency and, you know, social mobility and it all mm -hmm. kind of plays nicely together for the most part. Yeah. But then when you add in that these black and brown people, well, let's just go with the black people, the slaves and brown, like, you know, Native Americans, when, as time went on, when they start to really enter the educational system, I wonder if that's when the conflict really started to happen with these goals of, <laughs> of yeah. education. Because now it's like, wait a minute, we're better than them. Mm -hmm. So it can't be democratic equality for them, but mm -hmm. it is for us. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's really interesting too. When you said that, I thought of um, Booker T. Washington, who was like, hey, let's put we got to figure out a plan and then you have social efficiency. How can we 
you know, kind of integrate these black people in, into society where they can kind of uh, play a role and, and um, contribute to society <clears throat> um, socially in, a, in a, um, a good social contribution. So, and then what happens? Was, education changed. Yep. While still maintaining their sense of superiority. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. I like that you said a role <laughs> because that's really, you know, what it is like. Yeah. You this, you know. You can and, go to the school and learn how to do trades, mm -hmm. whereas, which is, you know, hey, social efficiency, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, trades contribute to society, but but that's what you can do for right. your education. And as for us, the non-Black people, we will continue to move up the ladder. Yes, <laughs> it will be socially mobile. Yeah. I'm going to play what Dad had to say about this, too. Um, okay. Everybody should have the same access to uh, to education. Some will, some will take advantage of it, some will not. But the access to it should be should be there, and it would be up to each one to um, to determine um, what their role would be. And I think as they as they do that, if if some go go into um, uh, the uh, education, what do you call it when you when you go into higher learning? Some may, some will determine that they're not good, they're not well suited for that, and they'll start to branch off into other fields such as uh, uh, maybe trades or 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 different technical uh, different technical branches. Mm -hmm. So when you think about social, like for instance, social efficiency in education, mm -hmm. it's like. You know, these people, like for instance, if you go to Detroit down the street, you'll say, see this vocational school, that yep. vocational school, you mm -hmm. know. But if I can't remember being like in Oakland County, really, and maybe I'm just haven't looked enough but, yeah. <laughs> and seeing vocational school, this vocational school, that. Mm -mm. And so it's like you have this social efficiency of like, okay, these black people over here, they can go and they can do all of this grit work, which is important work That's you know, right. to do. And you can make a really good living yes. from it. But we're going to have them do that. Um, and then what happens? Well, my father was a plumber and mm -hmm. my grandfather was a plumber and I'm going to mm -hmm. go to school and I'm going to be a plumber. And you have like mm -hmm. this you know, replication yep. of, you know, the same type of work and the same type of class. Yeah. Know? Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, when you think about why there's so many vocational schools within the city, it's because um, the city, city schools have been failing. So like you have a lot of people that have dropped out of school, a lot of people that graduated from school, but don't that lack the necessary skills to kind of transition into a family sustaining, I mean, a job with a family sustaining wage. So all of these vocational schools have popped up to kind of fill that gap. And um, there was a, 
a um, several theories actually, but one that comes to mind right off the top of my head, just because I love it, it's mm-hmm. called critical race theory. And they they talk about that whole you know, tracking of students, putting mm-hmm. students on different tracks. So you might think, for example, someone who maybe was put on the trades track, right? So um, they say, okay, I'm gonna go to this vocational school. I'm gonna become a plumber. I'm gonna be, you know, get this skilled trade. But even they have to deal with racism placed in the skilled trades. Like they can't even, you know, aspire to becoming a journeyman. You know, that, I mean, that was locked. So they're, they're stuck in like being an apprentice or- You talking. Okay. So, I mean, it's just so sad that even no matter which educational track you, you find yourself on, there's going to be those barriers that prevent you from, you so know, going to be a Yeah. It's all, the tear is always going to get that gradation scale. Yeah. Going to get darker as it goes down the ladder. That's right. But yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's listen to a little bit more of what dad was talking about. What's he talking about? Well, the teachers at that time were, were trying to, were, were, so many were dealing with behavioral issues in the, in, the, in the school and in the class that those who were there to get the education, they suffered because they had just have to sit there while the teacher uh, tries to, to have some degree of uh, of a safe environment for the children because some of them just uh, just were not well behaved. They were nuts. Yeah, um, they were not. I like how thoughtful that is. Like, I know. He's, he's really like thinking. You know, uh, listening to this again, <clears throat> when he was talking, I didn't think about this, but um, there's this whole idea of deficit thinking. Mm-hmm. What's that? And it's basically saying that when kids have, that whatever kids are going through in school, their behavior in school, um, they don't know something or they're, you know, misbehaving or, mm-hmm. you know, and some kids have behavioral issues, you know, right. yeah. that's what they just do. But yeah. that's when those services that should be in the schools should come into play. That's and, right. you know, and help those, those kids out who, who do. But, you know, the thing is, is that you go into any black school in the city, mm-hmm. that's redundant. You go into any <laughs> school in the city. <laughs> wait, wait, do you mean all schools? <laughs> you go into any school in the city and they will tell you that the majority of the children or a large percentage of those children have behavioral issues. That's right. But yeah. That is statistically <laughs> impossible. The whole idea of deficit thinking is putting the issue of children not learning and mm-hmm. all of that on the, on the child. Yeah. So you have a second grader who is walking around the classroom and mm-hmm. acting crazy mm-hmm. in whatever way they mm-hmm. do and saying there's something wrong with that kid mm-hmm. they come from a home their parents aren't interested they 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 and not saying you know what this kid is spending eight hours of their day with you as a yeah. teacher that's right you decided to be a teacher you're yeah. teaching second grade mm-hmm. what 
where what do you have to say about what your contribution yeah yeah that's it like so you know and that's the whole idea it's like passing the buck yeah it is Mm -hmm. and it's like they're in the second grade they're eight yeah they're nuts they're crazy they're energetic they're all Mm -hmm. those things yeah but that doesn't make them a bad kid that's right you know yeah this whole idea of school of choice uh wasn't really a thing until I think it happened when we were in school. I think that was the beginning of it. And now it's just, you know, the norm. And yeah. uh, dad had something very interesting to say. I asked him about um, open school, the school that you went to and, uh, you know, how that came about. And, I, and, and also um, with Deshaun, he didn't go to the neighborhood high school which was Redford yeah at the time, and um and how that how that came to be so let's listen to what he had to say should I sing the open school yeah. song or there were no white kids that he taught by the time that I got to seventh grade there were none and but I remember open school being pretty diverse you know in general so why do you think? I mean, what, what do you make of that? Like, and I, I think I think that they I think that was intentional. They they I think the um, they they couldn't make it all uh, Caucasian, so they they took they kind of picked uh, the, the the students who would do well, and they and they they had a a multi racial multi you know group. So now you have three kids. You have one in high school, which was Henry Ford High School. And that was a school that he was not supposed to go to. He was supposed to go to Redford, right? Yes. So how did he want, how did Deshaun wind up in Henry Ford? I mean, you could request. Was that just a basic thing? Like they put it out there, your kid could go to Redford or... Henry Ford, or no, 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 you have to take the initiative. Okay, so they had to to come up with a reason that they would, um, that they would accept. And what about like for Candace and uh, open school? So she was in the VTOL school district, that's where she should have gone. So, what made open school? Was it like a magnet school or? Yes, yes, it wasn't. It wasn't a, a neighborhood school. Okay. Yeah, just like Flicks, it, it wasn't a. It wasn't a neighborhood school, right? So, what I thought was interesting about Dushan going to Henry Ford is, it wasn't something that everybody knew. Like you had to seek it out to do the work. Yeah, yeah. do the work, um, and he talked about, you know, open school when Mm -hmm. for you to go to open school, it was the same thing. You know, you had to seek it out. You had to do the work. Yeah. um, He mentioned that he stood in line. He had a number and he had to go in line every day before work Mm -hmm. to sign in to keep his space in line. And, uh, to get you into the school he said Mm -hmm. there were a lot of people and so it made me think about you know how that is like 
really weeding people out in terms of what type of student that you want at your school. That's right. Because um, dad had a job where he could do that. Yep. Wake up. He, you know, he worked the same hours every day, eight to four, you know. Yeah, dad had a car. Yeah, he had a car. Get in your car, go drive there and be inconvenienced. Yeah. Imagine like taking buses. No. To to stand in line and then taking buses to get to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like we read about this in my class. We talked about opportunity hoarding. Mm -hmm. Um and hoarding white spaces in education. Mm-hmm. And the system, this to me is an example of that. So I did, you know, and then, you know, we have Mikey coming up after and all of Mikey's schools were a school of choice. So it's like this evolution of me going to the school, neighborhood school, yeah, and then going to a school of choice school with- um, yeah. Uh, high school and then you starting off in a school that wasn't technically called school of choice it was like a magnet school um that you had to stand in line for six months apparently or six weeks don't disrespect open school okay (laughs) but and so it it has you going there and then by the time mikey entered it was just like what school was mikey going to like you had you know a a hat full of names that you could choose from yeah So let's uh, go, let's leave the whole educational spaces in terms of like school of choice and social reproduction and all of that. And let's move a little bit into um, this, like I brought up this idea of this theory, critical race theory. Do you remember Mm -hmm. what that is? No, tell me. I just talked. Okay, just tell me again. (laughs) So, um... Critical race theory is looking at education and other things too. It's, it's, you know, it can kind of blanket itself over any uh, discipline, but Mm -hmm. in terms of education, so, okay, I'm going to reverse. It started in law. So, and and looking at law and property Mm -hmm. and whiteness Uh as property. Mm -hmm. So... If you own whiteness, if you have that, Mm -hmm. then it gets you access to certain things, things that you don't have access to (laughs) if you were black or any other color, not just black, but anything other than white. Yeah. Whiteness as property takes you to certain neighborhoods. Great. It gets you good schools. Certain jobs. You know, grocery stores, certain yeah. jobs, all of So, Trader Joe's. I mean, hello. If you're black, you get all these. I mean, I like all. Hey, hey, I like all these. So, the whole critical race theory is saying, look, you know, we need voices of people to to make change because it's the voices of people they could tear their own stories, and their stories are legitimate and have yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it makes sense to listen to people who are able to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, instead of having other people to tell their stories, because that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, or not tell their story at all. 
Well, yeah, well, there's a history of that. Yes, absolutely. So my question to you is, uh -oh. when you look at, <laughs> when you look at this whole idea of voice hmm. and telling stories, um, what does that look like when you are in a classroom and you're, you're coming from an environment that speaks differently from maybe your teacher does? And you go in and now critical race theory says, my voice is important. I'm gonna tell my story. But can you tell that story if in the educational system, people are constantly telling you that your voice is wrong? The way you're saying what you're saying, your story, the way you're telling your story overshadows the story. Yeah, that's a very good question. Mm. You have all of these people, these black and brown kids who are constantly trying to reshape who they are and being expected to, yeah. uh, to fit into a system that wasn't built for them. Yeah. You know, but it could be amended to suit them. Let's briefly go to uh, this whole idea of, you know, voice again and, huh. you know, linguistic freedom and linguistic, because um, we read a, a book in the class this uh, semester and it was called Ghost in the Schoolyard and it was about school closings in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And in this book, a lot of people were, you know, a lot of parents and community leaders were talking about how the school shouldn't close. Don't close the school. And they were giving all these great reasons. And the people were up there, uh-huh, mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. You're right, business is about to close. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and the schools still closed. So yeah. I'm assuming, because I couldn't hear these people who was reading their words. Mm -hmm. But based on where they lived and on the south side of Chicago, most of them were ancestors of people who migrated to the north. Um, they pretty much created, were like an enclave because they weren't allowed to really disperse into the city. And so I think about just like social reproduction, I think about linguistic reproduction, you mm -hmm. know, have African-American English and just, you know, you learn it. I mean, we know it is something that you just kind of pick up yeah. at being Black in America. And it's a cultural thing that, you know, I hold dear. And any any last remarks? I know you've been reading um, White Fragility. Do you want to? Yeah, I read it too. And I thought it was a fantastic book. Um, oh, my boss to read it. I might be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, have you read? And um, this book, like I mentioned before, Linguistic Justice. Yeah. Mm. Um, Is that pretty good? You know, I, I just started reading it. And so far, yes, I've read other articles of hers, mm -hmm. um, April Baker Bell, and she does mm -hmm. a lot of her research in the city because she mm -hmm. uh, got her um, doctorate in at uh, Michigan State. So, I mean, I like 
her. I mean, she, it doesn't go too deep into it because she's not uh, linguistics. You know, it's not in linguistics, it's in education. Yeah. But it's a nice balance. So um, she just does talk about the assumptions of Black students who speak African-American English mm -hmm. and how, what do you think teachers would think just from your own experience? Yeah. There's mm -hmm. something wrong with them. Yeah. Which means that intellectually they're inferior. And, and unfortunately, and I'm a person who actually studied linguistics at yeah. the master's level. Oh, and it's still, but it's still like really terrible because living in a society that is ruled by mm -hmm. you know, white superiority, you mm -hmm. adopt these ideals. And mm -hmm. so even when I hear somebody who I know is an intelligent person and mm -hmm. I, I hear um, variables that are associated with African-American vernacular English, you know, mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. I'm like, mm, man, he's an idiot. You know, like a part of me does that. Yeah. And, I hate, and I hate it because me too. there's nothing wrong with that person language or the way they're expressing themselves but I've been brought up in a society mm -hmm. my entire life that says there is something wrong with it that's that right that equals stupidity and yeah. it doesn't and so I'm yep. I, I feel like I am you know uh guilty of hearing and and I studied and not only am I black but I studied linguistics you know exactly and, and I still do it and and it's just growing up in an environment where white superiority is, exists right. and it's like I, I was listening to it's this the standard mom. yeah and even if you recognize that okay this is the standard it's not right but and then because it is the standard yeah it, it stands out the culture um, of power that's mm -hmm. what this um lady yeah. lisa delpit calls it you know yeah anything that the people who have the power they're Being acceptable those, yeah they're those are the things that are right i was listening to this one guy this um podcast and the guy says this black guy and he was like i hate that i'm a uh, a white supremacist you know, but I am because I grew up in America and this is where I live and I'm confronted with it every day. And everything that is about me from the time I was born mm -hmm. it was telling me that whiteness is superior. And it's like, yeah, even being black, you're a white supremacist. And that's so true yeah. because because you recognize that you need to align yourself and also everything to the standard that has been put into place in order to, you know, be successful. And now having that knowledge and going back in time and going into school, uh, the, a school system is like, how could you ever really have, I mean, you have a chance, but how could you have a chance of a kid who is white growing up in America, who don't, yeah. who's not carrying that thing someplace in their subconscious? Mm -hmm. you know like I don't remember specifically going to school and living my life as like I'm black I'm black I'm black I don't mm -hmm. remember that just because mm -hmm. I went to a school with that was either multiracial or all black one mm -hmm. or the other 
So mm-hmm. I never had, I never com- had to come, had that confronted that. I was never like, I'll blend. But so, <laughs> so it looks like we got cut off. We ran out of time, but I really do appreciate you coming by and chatting about um, what Black Spaces looks like in education. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for letting me, thank you for chatting with me. Thank you for allowing me to chat. Thank you for allowing me to chat. Oh, so polite. Coffee chat. Oh, no. Cool, so maybe one day you can um, come back and we can talk about things more. You did mention something about uh, linguistic justice and African-American English that I... Ooh, wait, did I say it like that? Um, because that sounds like I'm really smart. I hope I said it. <laughs> yes, yes, I did say that. I did say something <laughs> that sounded just like that. Yes, correct. Yes, so I would like to uh go a little bit deeper into that at some point yeah me too i'm going to read some books and come back and uh, live up to the statement that i made yes (laughs) all right thank you bye bye (laughs) 